VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, October the 14th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of this Come On With It edition of Open Line. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So you know full well I'm keeping an eye on the Newfoundlanders and Labradorians playing in the National Hockey League. Last night, Dawson Mercer made his regular season debut for the Devils. They lost 5-2 to Philadelphia, but one game, one point. They had an assist last night to get her going. For those of you following along with the big league, you know, what a strange sort of scheduling to open up the season. So many teams with back-to-back games, and then followed by four full days off. There's a couple of teams that play three days in a row. You know, it's not a matter of easing it because every game counts, but what a surefire way to maybe enhance the opportunity for people to get injured. So, anyway, let's go. Uh, today began the taping of a video that was seen by hundreds of millions of people on the Internet. And it was when Australian daredevil, a guy named Felix Baumgartner, he completed a skydive to Earth from a hot air balloon that he floated up into the stratosphere. So he hops out for a free fall of some 39 kilometers down to New Mexico. The total free fall time about 10 minutes. I mean, it's one thing to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. I ran into a friend of mine yesterday at Sobeys, and they mentioned that uh, a couple of people belonged to them had just jumped out of an airplane in Europe, but I'm thinking, who does that? Now, of course, for thrill seekers, and many people have done it. I haven't, but I don't think I would anyway. But just imagine. Free fall of 39 kilometers from this guy, Felix Baumgartner. At one point, he reached a speed of 1,367.64 kilometers per hour. It's Mach 125. It's the fastest ever anyone's ever moved without the propulsion of an engine. So he broke the sound barrier on his descent. Have you seen the video? I can remember it. As soon as I saw this this morning, I thought, I remember that video. That guy is wild. So, yeah. Free fall for 10 full minutes, jumping from 24 miles. Okay, very well. Uh, today, a little one that's got a soft spot in my heart. It was today the children's book Winnie the Pooh by A.A. Mill. was first published in 1926. It was a feature of one of our boys' baby rooms was Winnie the Pooh when he was a child. Okay, let's keep going. In January, t- uh, January 12, 1942, the Germans unleashed Operation Pokenschlag. It allowed for the German U-boats to attack American and Canadian vessels, especially when we talk about the Gulf of St. Lawrence. It became known as the Battle of St. Lawrence because it was a kind of rich hunting ground for the German U-boats. And over the course of a few months, they sank 44 ships in Canadian waters. They only lost two of their own U-boats. So they sank, let's see here, they attacked seven convoys, sank 20 merchantmen, a loaded troop ship, two Canadian, uh, Royal Canadian Navy warships, pardon me. But this is the one that brings it close to home. On October 13th of 1942, the Sydney to Port of Basque Ferry, the SS Caribou, left Sydney in the morning, or pardon me, in the evening around 9.30 p.m. On board, 73 civilians, 11 children, 118 military, military personnel, and a crew of 46 people. And we know what happened next. U-boat 69 struck and sunk the SS, SS Caribou today in history in 1942. It was devastating to the province, and of course, it was a plight on the Nazis to have attacked a passenger ferry. So let's see here. The Grandmere, the HMCS Grandmere, was on the scene to try to uh, participate in the recovery effort. But there was very few. 237 people were aboard, but 136 had perished. 
57 in the military, 49 were civilians. There was a 15-month-old killed, a, a young fellow named Leonard Shears from Halifax. And inside the crew of 46, mostly Newfoundlanders, only 15 remained. Five families in particular were absolutely battered with particularly heavy losses. Five tappers dead, four toppers dead, three Allens dead, and the taverners, of course, including the captain and his two sons, and the Skinners, there are three of those. Those families were devastated, as was written in one of the papers of the day, a royalist newspaper in St. John's wrote. This was such a useless crime from the point of view of warfare. It will have no effect upon the course of the war except to steal our resolve that the Nazi blot on humanity must be eliminated from our world. All of those people killed in an attack on a passenger ferry today in history in 1942. Important story. Okay, so a little bit more of a pleasant marine-related story. I had to go downtown and have a look at the cruise ship, the Sky Princess, that made its way into their harbor yesterday. The largest vessel to ever be in St. John's Harbor. It's hard to even believe they can make that make the passage through the narrows in this thing. It was 19 stories high, 333-meter Sky Princess, 145,000 gross tonnage. Absolutely massive. I mean, it was just a wild sight. Now, we've seen big cruise ships in the harbor, and there's conversation about how much money the city spends on trying to attract cruise ships. And I think it was the 26th of the year. Over the course of this cruise season, they started coming to the province in June. I don't have the Cornerbrook number, so if you're on the West Coast, please add into the cruise ship numbers if you have them. So about 22,240-odd uh, passengers made their way to the city this year. That included the 300,000 300, and the 300,001 passengers who were on this particular vessel. is Frank Negro and G. Young Negro. That's since 1999, of course, and the 300,000th passenger made their way here. Nice greeting at the wharf, and that's appropriate. You know, the argument will be, well, they're here for such a short time. They'll only buy what they can put in their pocket or in their knapsack. So what kind of economic impact is felt? The city's saying in and around $8 million this year. That's a good thing. The key will be how many people have seen a short stay in the city, liked what they saw, and decided to come back for an extended stay. That's the one certain big upside to the cruise ship industry. But if you saw that vessel yesterday, <laughs> man, oh, man, fine stuff. Whoever the harbor master is that floated that thing in here, good on you. And now continue with transportation. This one, terrible story. As you heard reported by Brian Medore in the VOCM News, there was a collision on the Buren Peninsula Highway near North Harbor Wednesday evening that saw the operator of an ATV killed. 56-year-old man pronounced dead on the scene. But the story even gets worse. So we know the risks associated with your ATV on the shoulder of the highway, given the speed that the, the traffic is flowing. And so the guy in the ATV is trying to dodge a moose, did it successfully, but weaved into the front of a vehicle, and the collision took place and dead. Now, no alcohol, neither speed, the fellow was wearing a helmet, but of course, an ATV up against a vehicle traveling probably in and around 100 kilometers an hour, and you know the end result, so our condolences to his family, that's just awful. All right, back to the House of Assembly. So we knew this was in the works, so some amendments to the Medical Act, which were required. You know, the hurdles, the paper warfare, and the cost, and the time for mostly doctors, to want to make their way to the province, whether it be for a locum or a permanent position. There had to be a way to fast-track doctors into the system here. Of course it needed, it needed to happen. Now, it's not to say that we, haven't, we don't have to be careful with the level of accreditation and the type of training and the experience that a doctor would have, but there's ways to do it. That happens in other parts of the world, and hopefully and thankfully, these amendments will be helpful to a system that is under siege 
And for many people, and they're not wrong to call it, we're in a crisis. So there's lots of ins and outs to it, but, you know, it's time for the federal government to stop saying that it's a provincial jurisdiction because there should be no need for provinces and territories to combat each other in trying to attract a health care worker. You know, I don't know if we can have a standard rate of pay because it's not a one-size-fits-all, but certainly if you were trained at an accredited, me accredited med school, especially inside of Canada, you should be able to practice wherever you see fit with very little opposition to it, very little additional paperwork or examinations. You know, if you went to med school at Mon or at UBC, if, if they have a med school, that should be good enough. So some of these moves are a good thing. But like everything else, when it sounds good in concept, there's still questions that we can't ask. You know, the role of the members of the opposition. And then things addressing things like um, who is able to prescribe a drug. And part of this amendment will give medical practitioners the ability to prescribe electronically. Now they can only do it through the pharmacy network. There's other e-prescribing services, so that's a good thing. We also wonder the status of some amendments into the Medical Act that would allow for, you've heard it before, the expanded scope of practice, for instance, for pharmacists and or the ability for nurse practitioners to set up a shop and to bill MCP directly. So there's more things that can be done. This is a good first step. Of course it is. So let's, we can take it on. But there's a couple of big questions to be asked. What is the status of implementing day surgery for folks looking for a hip or knee replacement? Where are we? Has that happened yet? Not to my knowledge. Also, there's a couple of other issues that have not really got a lot of attention, but they are certainly worthy of it. We know the issue regarding the megapixel and the screening of mammography tests. Eight more patients have been identified as they may indeed have the wrong results. So that brings the total of 38. Only, the numbers only include Eastern Health, Western Health, and Labrador Grenfell. does not include Central. They're going to contact people if indeed you're one of those patients. But when we talk about the stress and the worry and anxiety, of course, if you're any of the thousands of women who had a mammography during that extended amount of time, you know full well people are sitting on pins and needles waiting to hear whether or not their test results may have been identified as having discrepancies. So it brings the total to 38. Also, and this one, boy, I'll tell you what, you wonder what goes on in the head of some people. And this is a story coming from the Bayver Peninsula Healthcare Center. Two men who are in a very vulnerable state, apparently Central Health has uh, found out that there was an inappropriate pictures taken very likely of their genitals, right? I mean, who are these people? So there's different groups looking at it. Central Health is reviewing it. The province's Information and Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey, is looking at it. But first and foremost, this is a violation of the criminal code. The RCMP are investigating. We don't know the status of the person or persons who thought it was a good idea to take these, what are being called, inappropriate pictures. But in essence, they are absolutely sick. Sick. I mean, how do these things happen? First, we had a fella posing as a nurse, made up his credentials, and, of course, assaulted someone inside a long-term care facility or a personal care home. And then you got the fella up at the cabin performing circumcisions and the like. You know, and then we had a prisoner and a couple of guards performing a dental surgery in a dentist's office. So, like, can people just maybe take a deep breath and maybe think to yourself, is this something I should be doing? And the answer every single time in those circumstances is no. But hopefully the RCMP will have a comprehensive investigation into whoever these people are. Imagine. Imagine the indignity for those patients and their families. And then what it does do, and this is the unfortunate reality, and Michael Harvey points it out, there's a trust issue going on. 
And if people have this in the back of their mind as they're wondering whether or not they're a debilitated loved one in a hospital, in a long-term care facility, or an acute care facility might indeed face some of these circumstances, how can that possibly be? Anyway, that story is infuriating. Speaking of things that sound like they're great in concept, and many of them are, but as I mentioned, they still deserve some questions. The Future Fund. So the province is going to enable the government itself to put some money into a future fund for future rainy days. It sounds great, doesn't it? But what gets lost inside of this one is if it's royalties coming from non-renewable one-time resources like minerals and or oil, okay. But it just seems to be a bit of a throwaway addition that it may indeed include revenues coming from the sale of government assets. To me, and maybe I'm alone or in the minority thinking that, that's the biggest part of this. Because we just don't know what they're being, what's being considered here. We've been shielded from the Rothschild report. You know full well that's going to really help guide government's decision-making on what government assets should be sold or apparent value. We do not want to jeopardize the province's position and expose any commercial sensitivities. Why would anyone want to do that? But those questions are real. Two things. There's a six-person trustee board that's been established as part of the oversight for this future fund. It answers directly to the Department of Finance. Like some of the other advocates, standalone advocates, seniors, child and youth advocate, this board of trustees, it really makes sense to me if they present to the House of Assembly. Then we would be ensured that there would be a real deep dive question and answer session about government assets is case by case. You know, I know government wins and when you have a majority you get to call the shots, but these government assets, they do require a public debate and a debate on the House of the Assembly floor. Not just, okay, here's $100 million that came from, after the fact, it's been put in the future fund, and we're told 80 of it came from oil, or 50 came from oil, and 20 came from minerals, and the rest came from selling off motor vehicle. It's after the fact. It's not good enough. So the future fund sounds great. But let's see if we can change the course that the government's taking on that to make it better. Because remember, the future fund includes what? The future. Government is going to change hands. Whenever the next election is, it might change hands then or the one after or the one after that. So for the liberals who might find themselves on the opposition benches, it's also pragmatic politics to say that let's have groups like this, because it's so critically important, report to the House, not just the minister responsible for finance and the Treasury Board. You want to take it on? I think it's a big issue. Let's do it. Something else that sounds like a good idea, but obviously it has some flaws in place, being the smart fund system used by the school district to, uh, pardon me, to bring substitute teachers into the fold. It sounds good because so many junior, new-to-the-profession substitute teachers were probably not getting as much work as they deserved, right? The schools that had a comfortable relationship with a more senior substitute teacher, they're quite likely, when they know that one of their teachers is calling in sick or is away for the day, will go to their shortlist and say, well, I know that Mrs. Smith has a relationship with this grade 4 class because she's been in before, so let's call her. And that works. You know, if there's a story where there's one school that had a teacher out for five days and there was five different substitutes, that doesn't make sense. We can tweak this particular algorithm to ensure that, you know, anytime there's an absence of three days or more, one teacher covers it. It's better for the teacher and it's certainly better for the students. So what sounds like a good idea, and I think there's tweaks in the works to make it more manageable, to make it more effective, because there's a big upside to the new teachers getting a chance. But there's also the need for consistency for the students. Of course there is. I hate to admit it, but remember when you were in school. 
it almost felt like a bit of a break when there was a substitute teacher, especially if it was someone new to you. All the little hijinks that would be played by the students, and they knew that there wouldn't be any hangover if they were a little bit inattentive or maybe a little bit misbehaving. But let's figure out the smart fine, because it sounds good, but if it's not working, let's not just stand on our laurels, not just rest on a good concept. Let's do whatever we need to do to make it work for teachers, subs, administrators, and importantly, the students. Yes, the time spent by administrators in the morning trying to call a sub is an extensive, worrisome headache of a task, as opposed to doing what they're doing, right? Trying to work on their day-to-day operations, as opposed to spending all morning trying to bring in a sub or covering it themselves. Anyway, you want to talk about it, let's go. Let's move to the fishery for a second. I know that Clifford Small, the CPC member for Central, has been uh, named the fisheries critic. That's probably a good move. And then you look at what has been the linchpin for value and profit inside the fishery in the last number of years is lobster and snow crab. I mean, they're huge. Now the American market apparently has been decimated, mostly because of inflation. So people no longer buying lobster and snow crab. Bad news for us, bad news for Nova Scotia. What was once, and this story was based out of Nova Scotia, getting 17 bucks per pound at the wharf, now to 550 So while we know ground fish is in trouble, and then you see this uh, battering of the market, add into it some of the cautionary tags being placed on snow crab, for instance, regarding entanglements of right whales, Atlantic right whales. Yes, it's been a concern, but it hasn't happened here. Not once. There's no report of an Atlantic right whale being tangled in any fishing gear in this province. So you lump those two things together, and it's a problem. All right, I see the province has made it a little bit more... Let's see, that's not the right way to put it. There's been amendments to the Consumer Protection and Business Practices Act to protect individuals from some of the, what people might call predatory lenders or the high-cost lenders. So here's some of the amendments. Enhanced disclosure requirements, the prohibition of undisclosed fees, the prohibition of giveaways to encourage customers to take out loans and automatic payment deductions from the borrower's check. Also importantly, a chance to sleep on it. So a cooling off period, uh, it, they'll give you four days and you can back out of the loan without penalty. Just have to be careful with these things. I mean, it just does speak to the desperation that some people face. Can't get a loan through a traditional lender and you look at that sign on whatever road and say, okay, I got to do it. And even in the world of consumer debt, Everyone's using their credit card. Now it's going to be more expensive. Retailers might be passing along up to 2.4% of your purchase because you use a credit card. Here's one that I've mentioned before. If your credit card interest rate is, say, 18%, and you have a $1,000 balance, and you're kind of struggling because we all are, if you just use the minimum payment to pay off your $1,000 balance on your credit card, it will take you 62 months. That's over five years to pay off 1000 bucks at the minimum payment. I want to put that out there. And if you want to talk about day one of the public inquiry into the invocation of the Emergency Measures Act in Ottawa, we can do it. Some interesting stuff, of course, yet to be learned or gleaned through that. We are on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number five to begin the show. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How you doing? Great today. How you doing? Good, thank you. I often wonder, uh, you know, how you uh, how you handle it, listening day in and day out to uh, all the really challenging stories. I don't know. <laughs> I try not to overthink it, but we hear a lot of them, that's for sure. Well, I'm first out of the gate, and I wanted to make a comment today about 
the NL legislature and House decorum. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so all week long now we're back in the question period, and uh, the various news broadcasts have been playing sound bites of question period. And I listen to these, and for the life of me, I can't see how they are in any way productive. I had to stop watching, whether it be uh, here provincially or in the House of Commons. I, I know people disagree with this particular thought, but I'll throw it out there anyway. It's hard to know exactly what it was like prior to it being broadcast on television, but I do think the inclusion of TV cameras has made it worse because now theater becomes much more attractive when you know people are able to sit in their own home and watch you with your juvenile quips and people banging on the top of the desks. I know the desk bang is as old as the parliamentary system itself, but I just don't know why anybody on any party in any level of government thinks it's a good idea to behave like that. I mean, we talk about setting an example and leading by example and what have you, and then all of a sudden you watch it and you go, what is going on here? It's like a playground. I agree 100%. And if uh, anybody in question period who are participating in those antics thinks that they're coming across as an effective leader, they're 100% mistaken. It's actually the opposite behavior would, would, would be the ones that would stand out. So recently, uh, the last exchange that's right at the top of my mind is the one regarding the uh, future fund and the exchange between uh, Tony Wakem and Siobhan Cody. Both those leaders, um, they, they are, they're ridiculous, the exchange back and forth. One couldn't answer a question, and the other one was, it's, it's all just about trying to um, produce a soundbite, a gotcha moment soundbite. And I just don't see how it's in any way productive. In fact, I think it's counterproductive, and it's um, it, it's one of the contributors to voter apathy. Because when we see our elected officials behaving a specific way, it's very easy to write everybody off and uh, become disillusioned with the whole process. Yeah, I mean, the skepticism and cynicism surrounding politics is very real, and what you're describing does not help. So I would... And I know this is uh, the the whole process is steeped in tradition, but I have a couple of small suggestions that I would love to see implemented. And the first one is is that anytime anybody is speaking, everybody else should be completely quiet. Uh, that banging on the desks and catcalling that should be completely eliminated right now today. Well, <laughs> therein lies the role of the speaker. And the Speaker has a lot of control here, but far too often the Speaker does not do what I would consider to be their primary job. It's about procedure, absolutely. Everyone has to be on point with the procedure. But the shenanigans can be tempered by the Speaker with a firm fist or hand or gavel. doesn't happen. Well, it certainly doesn't happen enough. Um, that, that, that leads me to my second point, because you mentioned the Speaker. This, um, the, the method where they address the speaker every second, it's Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, uh, is very clumsy and actually uh, uh, confuses the issue further. And I find that's an outdated uh, type of um, process as well. It's a verbal tick. You know, that's how it feels like to me. Some people use it a lot in their delivery. If the course of protocols or norms is to open up your 
your comment, your question, or your answer, which are hard to come by as well. If you simply say Mr. Speaker to begin, that's fine. I understand, you know, the traditions associated with it. But when they lean on it, it's like when you write an essay in school and you're told in grade five, I want a, a hundred word essay, and f- the word very appears 50 times. There's just no need of it, right? And they do lean on it. Maybe it's because they don't know what else to say, but maybe open up with it and end with it or something and not no more beyond that. <laughs> I find it to be a bit funny, actually, when I hear it. Uh, I find it to be very irritating and uh, <laughs> ridiculous. Fair enough. So uh, I just wish that uh, all parties would um, conduct themselves with a little more integrity and and speak clearly and calmly and have some um, real debate as opposed to what's going on there now, which is just totally ridiculous. It certainly can be. There's a political victory available to parties that decide to behave like that. There really, truly is. Because if you watch these proceedings and you know that one party is indeed behaving like elected officials should and people who are leaders should, then I think the folks, people at home would pick up on that. And then all of a sudden their focus would be on the antics of the party that does not behave like adults <laughs> in the room. So, Jeff, fair points, and I think a lot of people would agree. Well, you know, that point that you just made leads me to my last point. I agree 100%, but... If, if you've ever studied any kind of communication, I'm sure you have, you're, uh, you're in the broadcast business, but um, any communication course will teach you that for effective communication, the first thing you want to lead off with is a positive um, point. Now, I know the way we have our government set up is that the opposition party says that everything that the, uh, power, the party in power is doing is wrong and then vice versa. However, if one uh, leader... One elected official could break that mold. They could stand up and they could say, you know, with respect to the liberal government, we like a few of these things you're doing, A, B, and C. However, here's where we would do it better. We would also do uh, D, E, and F. All of a sudden now, um, the electorate could see uh, what things are going right and where they could be improved, as opposed to now, it's totally confusing because – one crowd is getting up, slamming the other crowd for everything, and, and vice versa. And and no one really knows, um, no one knows who to trust. I tried to give some examples of exactly that in the preamble this morning. It's it's all in the message, right? You can deliver the same message in different forms and have it received or heard differently. Like the future fund, it's one thing to say, you know what, we think this is an excellent idea. But how about this? Uh, and so the Smart Fine Substitute Teacher Program, that's an excellent idea and concept, but X, Y, Z. Because if you simply start up by, stand up and say, the future fund is idiotic, we don't know enough, uh, Smart Fine is stupid, let's get rid of it, then the conversation kind of gets derailed. We're not having a debate. We're not having any collaborative approach to real important public policy. It's us against them. And I get it. Politics is never going to be kumbaya. It's not going to be all hands joined shoulder to shoulder, singing it from the same songbook. It's not going to be that. But there's a way to do it better and still do the critically important role of holding government to account, to be the opposition, to, uh, to play out your role as is intended. But there's lots of different ways to do it. I can say one message, 10 different ways, and you'll hear it 10 different ways. So, you know, it's a bit too much about, as you rightfully pointed out, try to come up with a soundbite that might make it on the newscast, whether it be television or radio or quoted in social media, but that's not really working in our best interest. Agree 100%. The first party that implements those communication tactics are going to make gains, and they can take that to the bank. Uh, it's nice talking to you, man. Good to have you on. Happy Friday. Take care, Jeff. Bye-bye. Uh, will I take a break, Dave, on time? Okay, there's a good number in the queue, which we really appreciate. 
and your patience. When we come back, we're talking about the St. John's International Women's Film Festival. they got a short film pitch coming up, I think, but we'll find out more from their executive director, Megan Hollard, after this. We're talking deaf education. Don Coombs is back to talk about the telethon coming. You know the rest, don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Well, every good film festival will include more beyond simply viewing each other's work in the theater. It also includes a bunch of panels and some networking opportunities. And one of the world's acclaimed film festivals is indeed the St. John's International Women's Film Festival. And joining us on the line is the executive director of said festival, Megan Hollard. Good morning, Megan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks so much for taking my call today. Happy to have you on the show. What's on the go? Uh, Well, I know everybody's getting ready for the weekend. That means you're probably getting your social plans ready. Um, And so I wanted to put in people's mind the fact that we will be having the 33rd annual St. John's International Women's Film Festival starting next week. So that runs from Wednesday, October 19th, until Sunday, October 23rd. Of course, there'll be lots of films, just like you mentioned, but we'll also have lots of panels. During the five-day festival, we also have our forum. So that means people can get a chance to meet their new favorite filmmakers, learn a little bit more about the booming industry in our province. Um, Maybe they have a project that they want to talk about with somebody. There's lots of different things to get involved in. One of them is, you know, the networking is a great opportunity to see what other people are doing, maybe get some good ideas from people or some tutelage from some people that you you admire. But one of the ones you've got coming up is the face-to-face pitch session. That is so critically important to understand how to deliver what you might even refer to as the elevator pitch, you know, a short, concise one or a more broad uh, offering of what you're proposing for a short film or a feature length film. It's one thing to put people in front of each other, quite another to give them the tools so they can be successful with their pitch. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked about that. So the face-to-face pitch is a really unique opportunity for people to, um, you know, have their 15 minutes, exactly, that elevator pitch, get in front of somebody and speak to somebody from Telefilm, CBC, the NFB, or the National Film Board of Canada, um, take the shot, lots of different companies that you hear nationally, internationally, locally here as well. So you get that um, moment of fame, shall we say, and get that moment to get some advice or some critical pieces. And also unique this year, people can have that 15 minutes, but they can have it from their home. So if you want to get in front of a Zoom screen and have that 15 minutes with somebody, get some feedback, look for what those producers are looking for these days, it's a really great moment. So I'd encourage people to head to our website, womensfilmfestival.com. You can learn a little bit more about the face-to-face, and people should apply by the deadline tonight. That's midnight tonight, um, because we will be going through all the applications, and we will um, source through your one-pager, your little bit of information that you have about your project, and we'll match people with different producers to speak to. It gave me a little pang of sadness when I read that Pope Productions is involved. What a loss. Yeah, absolutely. We're really fortunate, though, to have Lisa with us. Oh, sure. Um, And so Lisa will be taking some pitches, but of course we'll be certainly raising a glass to Paul um, during our five-day festival. It's it's been a big loss, but it's also a wonderful moment for us to come together and celebrate Paul. I hope people are aware that in the international world of film festivals, the St. John's International Women's Film Festival is held in extremely high regard. 
we are so fortunate. It's really nice to see a lot of people that um, you know show their films with us. They say exactly that. They recognize exactly that we're uh, the longest running women's film festival in Canada, the second longest running in the world. Um, you know, and, and many people know that are listening. Running a nonprofit, uh, running a festival, especially in times of COVID and everything else, has been very challenging. We have an extremely dedicated volunteer board and team as well with us, and it's so important that they share our mandate as well. You know, there's a well documented gender imbalance in the industry, and we want to make sure that women are represented behind the camera as well as in front of the camera, and give them, you know, creative and financial authority in the industry. It's so important. You know, we always say our tagline is we're made by women but we're for everybody in this province and correct me if i'm wrong it seems to me we have a very strong contingent of senior producers directors and writers and actors that are women and maybe punch above our weight when we look at the comparisons across the country Absolutely. You're entirely right. We are so fortunate. You know, we just had uh, Ruth Lawrence just wrapped, I believe, yesterday on Party Pirate. It's a new feature that she is making. Um, The industry is really booming these days. And I think that, you know, the role of our nonprofit, as well as so many other people in the community, is to help create that um, very supportive art space. And I think that Newfoundland and Labrador is very well known for that. Um, So we continue to see that. And I think that's a that's not only the nonprofits and people volunteering their time, but it's also the people that are listening today. When you go out and come to a film, come to opening night, rent a movie, when you go to the theater, you're showing support, and that keeps people employed and keeps people being creative. He just mentioned Ruth uh, Lawrence, one of my absolute faves. Uh, I produced a film with, uh, it was Joel Thomas Hines' directorial debut back in 2011 called Clipper Gold. Ruth Lawrence was in it, of course, with Des, and when we brought it to Halifax, she won Best Actress for that little film that we had in. And I make that point because this is not just for women. It's a women's film festival to highlight the work of women and to bring women together, but men are involved in this film festival absolutely. So don't just hear it as the women's film festival and think that it might not be for you. There's lots of men working on and in these films. There's lots of men will be in attendance in the panels. Lots of men will be involved in the seats watching people's work. So sometimes I just wanted to add that so that people... we. Make the men out there know that this is for you too. We're just highlighting the women's work, but please go and enjoy enjoy the panels, enjoy the screenings because it's an all-in. Absolutely, Patty, and I will say, uh, you mentioned Joel Thomas Hines. Actually, um, uh, Joel Thomas Hines' son, Percy, is also going to be one of the actors, the main actors in our opening night, and that's I Like Movies. That's by Chandler Levesque. This is her first feature film, so we'll have a local star as well involved in our opening night on Wednesday, October 19th. And Percy's mother, oh, sorry. Sorry. I was going to say Percy's mother, Sherry, also a heavy hitter in the business. Absolutely. such And such a huge, important person in our organization who has spoken so generously. Uh, actually, she was just recently involved in a, a little debut that came out from Ruth as well just this week, A Lot of Love in the Room. It's a 20-minute documentary that speaks to all the history of our 33 years as a festival. And that's available on Jim, and you'll also be able to see it during our festival. Where do people need to go if they want to register and participate in what? have you yeah absolutely head over to our website womensfilmfestival.com you can get tickets there you can read a little bit more about the form you can read a little bit more about the movies everything good to have you on the program good luck with the form good luck with the festival and thanks for your time megan Thank you so much, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. That's Megan Hollis. She's interim ED at the St. John's International Women's Festival. Festival. Let's go to line number seven. Colleen, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Um, A little bit nervous. Take your time. (laughs) Um, Okay.
Okay, I know that uh, I listened to your show yesterday and listened to your interview with Trent Langdon, and there's apparently a teacher shortage as well. There's been a shortage of qualified teachers of the deaf right across Canada. Um, and I know the Churchills have been advocating for qualified teachers of the deaf. In actual fact, I wanted to um, just to clarify something I said a couple of years ago about the qualifications of being a teacher of the deaf. Um, well, I did my master's degree in Amherst, Nova Scotia through Mount St. Vin- I'm sorry, not Mount St. Vincent. It was um, Université de Montaigne, excuse my French accent. Uh, and now, of course, it's being offered through Mount St. Vincent. I'm not sure what other universities are across Canada offering the program, but um, when I did it, I only did two basic ASL courses, American Sign Language courses, and I do understand that Mount St. Vincent doesn't offer much of anything other than two basic American Sign Language courses as well. Um, when I was hired um, for a replacement position back in 1994 at Newfoundland School for the Deaf uh, to teach intermediate math, uh, my signing skills were at an intermediate plus level. During my year there, um, I really felt horrible because I knew my signing skills were not of a superior, superior plus proficiency. And I felt horrible because I felt I was not providing enough of ASL to the students when I was teaching math and social studies. And it continues today. Um, I I just want to say, I wanted to clarify that because I think I kind of ruffled a few feathers when I said we don't have qualified teachers of the deaf here. We do. They have their master's program completed. Uh, but the piece of it is, is the expertise, their fluency in American Sign Language. I mean, would you, uh, so classroom teachers, for example, there's a shortage. So, okay, let's go worldwide and find uh, teachers from other countries to teach here and teach English, and we can use interpreters in the classroom. So if your first language is German, you can teach English, just use an interpreter. And I'm sorry to say, but that is happening now. It is. You know, I, I've spoken to this a couple of times. I think there's going to be a lot of change coming, depending on the outcome of the Human Rights Commission, uh, look into Carter Churchill. Because we know that it's fine to say we have an inclusive model, whether it be for deaf or hard of hearing or on the spectrum or ADHD or having behavioral issues, learning disability. But if you don't have the supports in place, then we're not really doing anyone any real favors. It's not an equitable opportunity to be educated. So... If the result is that the district is taking a task because of the Carter Churchill case, they'll know full well. The next challenge might be because of the parent of one person with one diagnosis or another. And so we're going to see a real groundswell. If I think the outcome is going to be Carter Churchill was let down or was betrayed or was left out, whatever people, how they want to couch it, I think this is going to be a real a real lesson for the district and the government for the rest of us to learn when we hear the results of this Human, uh, Human Rights Commission inquiry. Absolutely, I agree. I agree. Um, I attended every day of the human rights uh, hearing. Um, I was really glad to have the opportunity and to feel well enough to attend. Um, The overall feeling is one of true disbelief Um, from bureaucrats, from some of the employees at NLESD, 
Uh, I wanted to start out with uh, Grand Marie Price. Now, he is the chair of NLESD from 2016 to 2022, and I happened to go through his um, um, his testimony. Uh, I just wanted to cu- a couple of points that he has made. So he was explaining he was explaining uh, through the hearing that um, his role was to make sure that they, so NLESD, followed policy that they had already established in terms with dealing with those issues as they came up. But in actual fact, I mean, since the closure of School for the Deaf, um, NLESD, or at the time it was... um, Oh, I forget the name of all the districts when they amalgamated. But in any case, there was and there is presently no policy with respect to the teaching of students who are deaf in their first language ASL. There is French policy. Um, So managing these issues, so that's with respect to the Carter Churchill's human rights case, obviously, Um, and making the education of Carter and other students who are deaf public. Now, he also continued with saying that ensuring that um, NLESD is following legislation. In actual fact, under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, Article 28, it says every child has the right to an education. Now, Gromery Price went on to say uh, resource allocation and let us make sure if anything falls outside of it. Well, we made a proposal, the itinerant teachers are deaf and hard of hearing, we made a proposal for satellite classroom, which is, um, you know, what is happening right now, the ASL classroom at uh, East Point Elementary. Uh, back in 2017, as a matter of fact, uh, people, my immediate boss and um, Kim Lawler and then Bonnie Woodland, Uh, who also testified, they knew of deaf kids who were born in 2011. So this was immediately after 2010, even though somebody in their brilliance uh, decided to forecast, say, that there's going to be no deaf children born in the next five years. So we're closing school for the deaf, which is, I mean, who's got a crystal ball to say that? You know, I don't. Um, And they knew of this group of children, babies, at the time. Nothing was was given to us, nothing was sent to us with respect to Janeway, uh, letting us know that this group of babies existed who were deaf. Um, And as a matter of fact, Darlene Fewer Jackson also, and NorCal, wrote um, the gaps in the education system, in deaf education in the province at that time for the Student Support Services Director at the Department of Education. And, as well, Bonnie Woodland, who was a senior education officer, received letters from the SLP at Jamie Audiology, uh, speech-language pathologist, sorry, auditory verbal therapist at the Janeway, saying that Carter Churchill needed to be taught in American Sign Language. Mm-hmm. So the NLESD did nothing about it. Even when we made the proposal, our caseloads were huge. So not all itinerant teachers service hard-of-hearing teachers. Okay. The difference is, teachers of the deaf teach deaf children. Yes, we are. We have the same master's degree done. There's difference in our ASL signing abilities, obviously. 
We'll keep a close eye on this uh, inquiry because I think it's going to be a watershed moment if it goes the, tr- the, tr- the Churchill's way, pardon me. And I appreciate your perspective and your time this morning, Colleen. Thank you very much. Oh, can I continue? There's a bunch of things I really wanted to say. Well, maybe we can pick it up with a second call next week if that works for you. Or I'm a bit over time and we do have okay. a bunch of callers in the queue, but we can do it again next week. I'm happy to, uh, happy to have another call. Okay, best best kind, um, because that leads me into my second point. So I'll go from there. Okay, thanks, Colleen. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, quick one before we get to the break. Jeremy Hughes on three. You're on the air. Hi, Jeremy. Hello. Oh, yes, it's Jeremy here. Fire away. What's on your mind? Well, I would like to, I'm one of the volunteers, many volunteers, organizing a fundraiser for Cancer Care Foundation, Newfoundland and Labrador. That's a, uh, a, a charity organization that raises funds to help people dealing with the tragedy and the uh, trauma of, of cancer. Mm-hmm. And we have a music festival called Ged Fest. It is at O'Reilly's on Saturday, October the 15th from 5 to 11 p.m. So I'm just plugging here to encourage everyone to get out to the festival. Tickets are $15, and the show will be a tribute to the life of Gord Edgar Downey, hence the GED in GED Fest, and the music of Tragically Hip. We have a great lineup. I mean, I love the band. I think a lot of Canadians love the band. Of course, uh, Gord died from an aggressive form of brain cancer. I think it's called glioblastoma. And an extremely sad loss. I was in Mississauga for a rugby tournament. But I watched the, his their final concert in Toronto on a big screen in a park. It's something I'll never forget. So give us an idea of some of the some of the players, some of the bands that are in the lineup. We are very excited to have our headliner, which is Music at Work. They are a local band, and they are they are terrific. They will be playing um, some of the great hits. Uh, in fact, they they are a tribute band to the Tragically Hip, and they will be performing from nine to eleven on this Saturday at O'Reilly's. We have also Mick Davis, um, who will be appearing at eight o'clock. And we have also, um, but a great artist, Judith Morrissey, will be singing and playing at 7 p.m. And um, we also have, and each of, I must say, each of these artists, we're very grateful because they volunteered their time, donating their time to this great cause and this event. And um, they uh, are, are so excited to get out there and, and play some great music. So it'll be an evening of great music. Opening at 5 p.m., also donating their time, is School of Rock. And School of Rock will have their house band. And also, uh, not many people are aware, but School of Rock also have a, a active um, adult program. So the adults will be uh, performing a show as well. This is all at O'Reilly's. Um, we are so grateful and so excited that O'Reilly's is um, letting us have their the venue for that evening. And entirely, all of the ticket sales, which are $15, are going to the Cancer Care Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. So the funds and the money will stay in the province. What day is it, Jeremy? October the 15th, Saturday. So this weekend, that is tomorrow. Great lineup, great venue. You're lucky to have Mick Davis, one of my very faves here in the province. Uh, thanks for telling us about it. Good luck with it. Thank you very much. Encourage everyone to get out there and rock on. Absolutely. Throw horns up, man. Thanks, Thank Jeremy. You, okay, buddy. Thanks. All right, bye-bye. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking cost of living. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number four. Al, you're on the air. Al going once, Al going twice. 
Al is on hold. Let's go. Line number six. Say good morning to Don Coombs. Let's talk about the 33rd Annual Trinity Conception Placentia Healthcare Foundation Telethon. Whew. Morning, Don. You're on the air. Morning. How are you? Great, sir. How you doing? Absolutely perfect. Great chatting to you yesterday, Pat, and for your listeners. And I was telling you about the 33rd Annual Trinity Conception Placentia Health Foundation on this weekend on Eastlink Community TV. And it's on from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. We've got a couple of hundred volunteers out on the go. We've got the fire departments on the road uh, from Briggis and Upper Island Cove walking to the site, which the studio will be at St. Francis School in Harbor Grace, hoping to raise another half million dollars. What else do you want people to know about it? Because I've been involved with things like that in the past. People think, you know, you flick on your TV, there it is, as simple as that. But you just mentioned 200 volunteers. It is a massive effort. When this telethon is over, we start working on the next one because it really does take a lot of effort. A lot of effort, Patty, and we've got, uh, it's our 33rd, which I'm proud of to be associated with, and that we've got some of the same people doing the same jobs, like we've got an accounting department, we've got uh, people handling telephone people, uh, doing the same jobs for the last 33 years, and that's the support of the foundation and healthcare in our region. And Eastlink do this free of charge for us. Uh, we've got a team that will be working until about 11 o'clock tonight, changing the, the GM into a studio and back at it tomorrow, and then 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, here it is. Never seems to amaze me. You know, even when times are tight, when we do a radiothon or you guys do a telethon or the Janeway telethon, the numbers raised are astounding even though people are pinching pennies because we all see the same pressures at the gas pump the grocery store and everywhere else Patty, uh, as you just said, I'm amazed at the support we get. You know, we've got individuals giving us fifty and sixty thousand dollars for, you know, a small foundation. We understand the big ones, but uh, the people come through, and uh, you know, fortunately for us, we're the charity of choice in our region. And you know, people give in, and we do a grand giver thing, and we do a millennium giver, and you know, people fundraise for it over the year. They come in, and uh, you know, we encourage people to come into the studio. We call it studio, and sit down and watch the production and watch what's happening because. Uh, the people in Newfoundland and Labrador are known for the generosity, and certainly uh, they've been very generous and w- as we've raised millions and millions of dollars from, you know, equipment that's here at the facility. And uh, something I'm really proud of, Patty, uh, with our foundation, and, uh, y- you know, we have six or eight of the doctors here at the facility and facilities that we do come and they co-host with uh, with other people's uh, and you know that the doctors give up their time freely the people see him they say well that's doctor so-and-so on tv and they speak about the equipment they're they're you know it's so nice to see that uh, from our local doctors absolutely right because i mean the people on the front line just understand better than anyone else exactly what they need is so when they present themselves on the telethon or radiothon or whatever People pay attention. It's one thing for me or you to be reading down a bullet point list of what's needed and why we're doing it. But when the doctors are there, that gives it an additional uh, flair and sense of importance and understanding, I would suggest. And, and the viewers, Patty, the, the viewers, and, you know, they, they this is my doctor. This yep. doctor has done surgery on me. That's my doctor I'm going to see next week. And they relate so much to the equipment and the needs of the facilities that there's nobody else. There's nobody, you know besides a doctor or professional ethic that that knows as you just said the need for the equipment the use of the equipment and the continued use and we're very fortunate in this region to have the doctors that that come and do that and they volunteer their time they give up their their sunday the same as the rest of us and you know it, it's great to see and it's something that's built up in this region and i, and I look forward to it continuing don uh, good luck with the event and certainly congratulations to all the organizers all the participants all the volunteers and everything that it takes to make the 33rd annual trinity Conception, Placentia, Healthcare Foundation, Telethon. I appreciate the time again today, Don. Keep it up.
Thanks, Patty. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Time for a break. When we come back, appreciate the patience of those in the queue. We're going to talk about quilts for Ukraine, the cost of living, something that's going on at the Royal uh, Royal Canadian Legion, Branch 56 down in Pleasantville, the Legion Lap, and we're going to be talking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Amy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. I want to speak with you in regards to a house fire that happened in Baybert on Tuesday, October 11th, that left a 66-year-old man homeless. I remember the story, yes. So what's where is he and what are some long-term services that can help this fellow? Well, that's the reason why I'm calling you today, because right now he's being placed by Red Cross at the local hotel. He's only there until Sunday. After Sunday, he has nowhere to go. There is no rentals available in Bayvert, um, and we really don't know what's going to happen with him. Um, He has no choice but to try and crawl back in what's left of his house or set up a tent. You know, we're all thankful and grateful that there are short-term emergency services available when people are displaced by fire or otherwise, but therein lies the rub. It's short-term. You know, what's there for people for the long-term, whether it be a rebuild, and if you don't even have a place where you're willing to pay out-of-pocket for a rental and you can't find one, then what? I mean, this is a question that has loomed large for uh, quite a long time, and no one seems to be doing much about it. It's very sad. Um, I had set up a some kind of a donation thing on my Facebook page asking for help. And so far, I have maybe a handful of people who's offering to donate, like, some clothes and stuff like that. But it's very hard to get anyone to donate or to help in these circumstances. You know, and I don't know really know why that is, because so often on this show or other things like the telethons, radiothons, people are really quite generous. Every now and then it strikes a chord with our listeners and they step up and they contact me and say, I'd love to be able to help this fellow out. But when we're talking about, you know, they might be able to say, well, I've got uh, a gift card for Sobeys or something. But... That can help short-term, but where is he going to eat this, the food he gets from Sobeys? That's where it becomes really quite a struggle. So I'm, I'm going to speak on behalf of the listener saying, what can they actually do? Because we fundraise, but he still can't find a rental. So how are we approaching this? I have no idea. Me neither. Um, what we had planned on doing or what we are hoping for is maybe to get enough funds to maybe build some kind of a shed or shack or something like that um, for the winter and insulate it and put a wood stove in there for them. But again, it comes down to getting the fundings to be able to do that. I mean, we're we're willing to offer our time and our services to build this, but it's it's only us. Like, it's only me and my husband that's helping him. He has no, like, immediate family. Um, he do have brothers and sisters, but they are ill, and they're not in a financial situation to be able to help either. Like, he has nobody living in this area. And at his age of 66, to leave the only town, the only home that he'd known, is something that he's not considering and something that he's not wanting to do. I mean, he doesn't even go outside this town. He hasn't been to a doctor in 30, 40 years, and he's not a person to ask for help. So I've been stepping up, hoping that there's some generous people out there that's going to come forward and make some donations so we are at least able to get four walls built for them. Well, let me expand the ask then on your behalf. 
So financial donations are always most welcome. But folks out there in the contracting business, whether it be with your own time and effort or tools and or building supplies so that we can get some sort of safe, warm housing for this gentleman as we try to figure out the long-term solution. So contractors, building supplies, uh, retailers, those kinds of folks, maybe your generosity can really put us over the top here because, you know, when financial donations come in bit by bit, which is most welcome, it might take a bit too long for us to get this activity underway. So for contractors, building supply, retailers, if you can be part of the solution here, of course, Amy and this poor gentleman would be forever in your debt. No, wait, no. You'll be, they'll be very grateful. Let me put it that way, Amy. So how do you want folks to contact you? Um, they can contact me by email, okay. uh, which would be amypayne583 at gmail.com. Is, is Payne, P-A-Y-N-E? That's right. Okay, so say it one more time a little slower so I can write it down and have it on hand. It's Amy, A-M-Y, yep. P-A-Y-N-E, yep. 583. 583 at gmail.com. Got it. Or I can leave my number with you, and sure. if somebody wants to call in, and you can certainly pass along my phone number. We have it on hand. We're happy to do it. Thanks for this, and good luck. Let me Give me an update when you have one, Amy. Great. I definitely will. Thank you so much for taking my call. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, another one before we go. Where do you want me to go here, Greg? I'm going to go to right here. Say good morning to Jerry Potter. So we're talking about a Legion lap. Jerry, around the year. Good morning, Paddy. Yes, the Legion Branch 56 in Pleasantville is kicking off the Poppy Fun came campaign with a new event called the Legion Lap. It's come one, come all for a walk around around Kitty Bitty Lake on Saturday, October 22nd, 2022, to kick off the 2022 Royal Canadian Legion, Legion Poppy campaign. Yeah, it's a great idea. I mean, I've talked to you and Ronnie Butler about it, my good buddy Ronnie. Yeah. So this is, you know, an opportunity because the Poppy fun, the Poppy campaign is, of course, an integral part of fundraising for the Legion. But anything to top it up, anything to kickstart it is really, I think, a great idea. So what's the Legion lap going to entail? Do I have to pay? What do I have to do? Well, you can get the details on our website, legionlap.ca, or check out the link, pleasantvillelegion.com. So you pay your $10 registration fee by e-transfer to accounts at pleasantvillelegion.com or at the bar restaurant at Legion Branch 56, Pleasantville. By uh, this evening, Friday, uh, this evening, we're by uh, 9 o'clock this evening, we had our deadline, but we'll accept uh, complete registration forms and payments up till Sunday. Uh, we are capping this at 150 participants for the first year. So the participants will receive a T-shirt, a copy of lapel pin, a bookmark, and after their one lap around the lake, uh, there's a food and beverage also in the branch, uh, in the Legion Branch 56. So uh, registration should arrive at 10 a.m. to collect all that. And then the Legion Lap will begin at 11 a.m. at the trail of the Carbo Memorial Park, Kittivity Lake, right across the street from uh, Branch 56 Legion. And finally, Legion, as I said, there's going to be food and beverage social. Uh, the committee at the Legion Branch 56 leading this project are Ron Butler, Donald Mackey, Peter Will, and myself, and John McDonald, president of the Legion Branch 56, and his staff. And as you know, Patty, things like this need support uh, from sponsors. I'd like to give a shout-out to our sponsors. Our gold sponsor is D.F. Barnes. Our silver sponsors are Collision Clinic, Reynoldsworth Remax, MRI Limited, RDM Industrial and Tim Hortons. Our Browns is Polisher Shipping, Kelly's Pub and Pluto Investments. So uh, anyway, yes, you can get all the information there and uh, submit uh, your payment and your uh, 
we completed the registration form uh, say any time between now and a Sunday night like I said originally we had the deadline this evening 9 o'clock but um, we're getting uptake we started off with uh, offering it to the schools in the region we got some uptake there so we're opening up the door now to the community so it uh, should be a fun day Patty and uh, like I said it's for a good cause and just like to bring this up to your attention is that uh, I think it's the same month of October uh, the first 500s the Blue Petites marched out of the fields of Pleasantville along the banks of Kitavita Lake down Kingsbridge, boarded Florizel and headed to England for more training and then after that they went to Gallipoli. So it's a coincidence it's the same month of October. They, uh, so they, so they marched out here October the 4th, 1914. So it's a time for reflection when you walk around the lake uh, to think about all those who were involved in military conflicts uh, so that we enjoy our democracy and freedoms that we enjoy today. It's a great idea, Jerry. You got some horsepower there with Ronnie Butler and my good buddy Danny Fishmacky. So good on all hands. And of course, Peter, yourself, and John to make this all happen. It's going to happen on Saturday, October 22nd at the Legion at 10 a.m. They'll take your registration up until Sunday of this weekend. Drop down for not only to register, have a bite because good food at the Legion. Maybe grab yourself a pint and get organized for next Saturday. Good to have you on, Jerry. Good luck with the event. Thanks very much, Patty. Happy to do it. All the best. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. The Legion Lap, so that's a great opportunity for folks to get involved and help kickstart the annual Poppy Campaign. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to say good morning to the Liberal member from Mount Sio. She's the Minister of Digital Government and Service and L. Sarah Studley. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number seven and say good morning to the Liberal member from Mount Sio. She's the Minister of uh, Digital Government and Service and L. That's Sarah Studley. Minister Studley, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Fine today. Thanks. How about you? I'm excellent, thank you, and thanks for taking my call. No problem. So uh, what are we talking about, the high-cost lenders? Yes, yeah, so I was hoping to give some information, more information to your listeners, and thank you so much for including it in your preamble this morning. It's extremely important. It is, because, you know, folks, when they're desperate and they don't have the opportunity to borrow from a traditional lender, I'll call it, they'll do whatever they got to do to make ends meet or to get the car repaired or what have you, but you really have to go into these types of arrangements with your eyes wide open, and it does require some protection afforded to them by government. Absolutely. So, um, I guess aside from the changes that we're, we put through this week in the House of Assembly, uh, we recently also changed the maximum cost of borrowing a payday loan. Um, and we know that payday loans are, are used a lot in our province, unfortunately. Um, so with the cost of borrowing a payday loan, previously the, the maximum cost was $21 per $100 loaned. Uh, we changed it to $14 per $100 loaned, and that's the lowest in the country right now. Um, and I, you know, I know that's probably still too much. We're trying to, you know, have a balance. We know that these are used right now by a lot of people. Um, you know, if we could go too low, you know, maybe everyone will come out of the market. So we're we're right now the lowest in Canada for payday loans. Um, hopefully that'll help uh, consumers who, you know, have to go to payday loans. But, um, you know, we also want to make sure at the moment that that service is available because people are still using it. Do we have any understanding in this province about how common or how many people use these payday loan outlets uh, compared to other provinces necessarily? Um, I don't have any Newfoundland and Labrador specific okay. information. Um, I believe Canada-wide, like 6% of Canadians, if I remember correctly, uh, use, use payday loans say, in a given year, which is much higher than I would have anticipated. Um, and so that's kind of really the first, and we didn't need to change the law to do that. So we wanted to kind of make that change. We did that a few, um, maybe a month ago. Um, and then we introduced changes to the Consumer Practices, uh, Consumer Business Practices Act, Consumer Protection, um, because 
high-cost lending is a, is a growing sector in Canada. Um, and actually, I want to thank MHA Lucy Soils because she brought this forward uh, to me and my team with concerns from some of her constituents. Um, and when we looked at our current rules, the current laws, and looked at other provinces, we realized that we hadn't been keeping up. Um, so we put, you know, a quick order, uh, and we we are, are now have a well moving forward. We will have um, a, a set of regulations and legislation in place uh, to really make it clear for consumers uh, when they're buying high cost high cost credit. Um, you know, what is the total cost of borrowing? And I know you mentioned some of those other things in your preamble. Um, like exactly, what is the interest rate? What are all the fees? What happens if you don't make a payment? Um, and put some rules around that, like you have the four-day cooling-off period, uh, as you mentioned. And I guess I also, I think some people don't understand how common these are in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, we don't right now know exactly how many companies are doing offering high-cost credit products, but we have at least 24 physical branches in the province offering these services. So it is very common if we have 24 branches. Um, and these are like, you know, easy financial. Uh, and we're also talking about high-interest um, leasing of products, so easy home. So when you go and lease a couch or a TV, I know that that's very common, but those do have incredibly high interest rates associated with it. And I, I do think this goes to, you know, um, fi- financial awareness. And, and I would encourage your listeners, Patty, um, you know, if you're in a situation and you need a, you know, a product that you want to go to somewhere like easy home to get like a couch or something, um, or you're looking at a high interest loan, really look at what are the all, all the options available to you um, before going down one of these roads. Someone already wrote me an email when I said this in the preamble, said, you know, it's just more nanny state stuff. No, this is just pragmatic decision-making, in my personal opinion, because when people are desperate, they sometimes make bad decisions. So some of the most important, I think the amendments are a good idea, but the cooling off period of four days, the prohibition of giveaways or any incentives for people to take out these loans, they have to go by the wayside because when people are worried, we are just so likely to trip ourselves up and then six months later say, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? So... This is a good thing. I do, while I have you, want to talk about another story where your name is also mentioned and you are quoted. Yep. And this is a story about a fellow who's a brutal sex offender. He's got 12 similar charges dating back to, I think, 2007. His name is Adam Budgel. He changed his name to Adam Penny. This is the province with the least strict rules for name changes. In Alberta and Saskatchewan, I believe it is, you are not allowed to change your name if you've been convicted of a sexual offense. But in this province, not so much. As long as you're over the age of 18, you've been in the province for some three months, I think it is. You don't have to get fingerprinted, you don't need a criminal background check, and you can change your name, which comes with a lot of potential problems. I know there's reference to things like you go into the the national database, but somebody might fall through the cracks. There's a change that's easy to make here. Are we going to make this change? Because this, to me, jumps off the page as something that we can attend to quite easily. Uh, This is something that, um, you know, we're certainly going to dive into with immediacy. I guess right now, you anyone can change their name, as you mentioned. As soon as you you do that, um, you know we do tell motor registration, we tell the provincial, we tell the federal um, law enforcement agencies. Um, so you can't change your name and evade the law. Um, and I think an important piece to recognize here also is that because someone uses a certain name in social media does not mean that that's their name. You know, we, I'm sure everyone, all your listeners know many people um, who might have their middle name on social media or their, um, they don't have their last name for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and so I think when you're, um, 
you know, Googling someone just because nothing comes up doesn't mean that there's nothing to find. Um, and I guess regardless of your legal name, um, a Google search is not a reliable way of finding out the truth of someone, depending on what the name they give you. Um, but this is certainly something that we're going to, you know, look into with um, some urgency. Um, and I can understand the absolute stress and anxiety for victims. Um, but I, I guess I do want to assure the general general public that you know while you can change your name changing that is public uh, public knowledge and um, we inform all law enforcement agencies and there is no impact whatsoever to law enforcement by changing your name they know all of your names um, so you can't use that to evade the law yeah I mean I know the names are the name changes are published in the Gazette and the reports of the Canadian Police Information Center but even if it's say for instance a non-suspecting employer or who knows how this might be abused by the person who has changed their name so even if it just it negatively impacts one person it's something that we probably should do in my personal opinion and I'm glad to hear we're going to deal with it with some sort of immediacy I uh, appreciate the time this morning Minister Thank Thank you. Thank you very much, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Consumer the consumer Protection and Business Practice Act, that's a good move there. But this story about this fella, who is a dangerous guy, 12 convictions in two provinces dating back to 2007. He's been convicted of a variety of sexual offenses. He's been deemed by the Canadian Parole Board to be a high risk of imminent domestic violence. There should be no way for him to hide no matter how he tries. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Kelly's in the queue to talk about the fact that she went to visit a nurse with her son who has special needs, and there was a problem with the needle that was being administered. And then Macy Crowder, we appreciate your time. She's making quilts for Ukraine. Connie Pike is there to talk about uh, domestic violence and whatever else is on Connie's mind this morning. And then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number eight. Macy Crowder from Chance Cove. She's been making quilts over the course of 80 years. She's donated to all kinds of causes, like at the fire department, the Salvation Army, the Center for Hope. She's also been doing Christmas hampers in the region for some 19 years, food hampers for those in need. And now she's got a new focus for her quilts. Macy joins us on line number eight. Good morning, Macy. You're on the air. Yes. Good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks for making time for the program. Tell us what you're doing with your quilts these days. <laughs> Well, I started out, like you said, on your example. Uh, I made quilts for people that had cancer and raised money for them to help them with their treatment. And one to the other just went from there. I made one for the Legion and gave them to raise money. And uh, so there, when uh, Ukraine, this all happened and COVID and everything, I felt inside my heart that I'd like to do something uh, for the children that was coming into Newfoundland, uh, you know, into a strange country. So I said to my daughter, I said, what about if I made a quilt and you, you guys sold tickets on it, I said, and to raise money and give them, like, even just now, Christmas is coming up, to buy gifts for them, even if there's only a pair of pajamas each, something to let them know that... Uh, their love by us in Newfoundland. And that's where it went from that. And I made I made one to go in our church. So it would remind us every Sunday to pray for the Ukraine people for what they're going through. So I think it's a great idea, Macy, and good on you for doing it. Uh, describe the quilt for us. It's uh, a quilt. It's all handmade, like homemade. 
And it's in the center, there is like sunflowers, and it says, you are my sunshine. And around the quilt, I have little blocks put in with like love and peace and stuff like that. And it's got a little Bible verse on each end and one on each side. And it's uh, for a double bed and... uh, so I'm hoping something I'd like to raise. Like I said, I started out, I said if I could only get $1,000, I would be very, very happy. But, uh, you know, uh, people have been pretty generous, like some. So I'm only I, I'm only halfway there yet. But I hope I might have drawn on November 11th, and I'm hoping I can get to the $1,000. Yeah, good for you. Where can people buy a ticket, Macy? They can buy it from our post office, Mr. She Selnam, and my daughter, and her number is 460-5131, and my number is 460-4226, or you can phone the post office, and they'll give you the email address to, they can send money. This is the post office in Chanskov? Yes, it is, sir. Okay, wonderful. I assume this particular quilt features uh, blue and yellow predominantly? Yes, it do. Yes, it's yellow, mostly yellow with sunflowers around it, and it's it's very pretty. I think she sent you a picture of it this week. I don't think I got a picture, but I did get the email telling me about it, which is why I asked uh, for maybe for you or, or Diane to come on the show, so I'm glad you made time for us. Uh, just to extend the quilting conversation, do you make them by yourself? Yes, I do, sir. How many do you think you've made? Oh my, don't ask me. <laughs> I made one one time and it was on CBC radio when the the shooting was in the high school. In uh, My granddaughter was there and uh, they called me about that. And uh, I was making one then for my grandson. I, when they get married, like I give them a quilt. And this was a double wedding ring one, really big for double uh, queen size bed. And they took a picture of it and put on TV that evening because that's what I was doing when they came uh, to interview me. <laughs> that's terrific. And uh, But I've been making them years and years, like over the years, I'd say hundreds, yes. I make them for my friends sometimes. If I get a friend, it's really, like I've had friends been really good when I had my arm broke. And, and I gave her one and stuff like that. I just love doing it. And uh, I love doing it for a purpose. Well, I'm cold. I have a queen size bed, and my favorite color is blue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, uh, and like I said, I help out with the church and, and the hampers and uh, Christmas hampers, and I do the family services here all year round. It's been 19 years now since I started. I think it's wonderful. So we're trying to raise $1,000 or more, and you can yes. call 460-4226 or contact the post office in Chanscove. They'll supply you with an email address where you can make a, a transfer of funds and get your tickets set aside. So keep up the good work. I'd love to see a picture. So Diane, take a picture of the quilt and send it in to me, and I really appreciate your time. I enjoy speaking with you, Macy. Okay, sir. You have a great day. You too. God bless. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, lovely lady. Let's go to line number two. Kelly, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thanks. How about you? Um, well, I'm a bit frustrated as a mom. Um, 
My son went yesterday to at a public health clinic for a public health nurse to get his needle. And um, the public health nurse basically didn't know what she was doing. Um, so my son didn't get his needle. And the cost of this needle is uh, $1,357.13 that comes from the government that issued because he has uh, hormonal issues. He needs it every three months. And uh, because the nurse didn't know what he was doing, what she was doing, um, he didn't get his needle. And so is this going to be covered again by the government or what happens now? I don't know. He needs it every three months. And, uh, you know, she she put the needle in and uh, she never had the gauge off for the, to instruct the needle, you know, to to put the needle in. So that means the needle came out. She couldn't administer it again because it was already in the skin. And at one point she said, can you catch all to the needle so I could look up and see what I got to do here? So I'm just a mother. I'm not a public health nurse. I'm not a medical professional. So I can't hold the needle, which probably I shouldn't have caught hold the needle, uh, which was administered in my, heart, my uh, son's stomach. And um, she looked to see... But there was a safety gauge on it that she didn't have released. And, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, get some help and get someone to do it. Uh, it's very important that my child gets this needle, because if not, his hormones go out of control. And then there are other issues that happen. So, you know, where do I go from there? And then she looked at me when I was about to leave and said, today is Thursday. Um, I'll get hold of you back to you next week. Uh, she made several phone calls, but she and, and at that time she left the room. My son fell asleep. His appointment was two thirty in the afternoon. We got out of there four thirty with no needle. The needle went in a bucket that was disposed of. So I'm very upset here today. Um, where do I go from here? Uh, that's a good you know? question. I'm not 100 percent sure where to direct you. Uh, so where was this? What part of the province? Uh, in Gander, Newfoundland. So central health uh, related yeah. matter. That's all I was getting at is which regional health authority would have the responsibility. They have a, uh, a form and a contact number and an email address for folks who need to either file an inquiry or to file a complaint. You know, so mm-hmm. both I, I would suggest is the, the right next step for you to take. I, don't, I would have no earthly idea about how it's covered, but you made reference to the, someone who might not know what they're doing. There's no shame for anybody in the healthcare profession. If it's something you haven't done before, you're not familiar with the syringe, and you get some help, because all that happens then is the person gets the needle they need, and you're now you've also learned how to administer it properly. So that would be what everyone okay. should do. You know, There's no shame in saying, look, I've never given one of these before. I want to do it right. I don't want to waste the dose. I don't want to break the needle. What do I do? How do I release the safety mechanism or whatever so it's too bad that didn't happen that way but if i was you i'd contact central health and get those questions answered formally because i wouldn't know what to tell you to be honest okay no i just wanted to to put it out there to parents that you know these things happen and you know uh you know my child is suffering now because his his hormone needle is going to be late and the cost of it you know the government will they cover it again or will he have to wait another three months to get this needle so they'll they'll pay for it it's it's an excellent uh, question, and I wish I had a real firm answer to offer you, but next steps, if it was me, I'd just go right to Central Health, and even if you Google Central Health Complaints, uh, I think you'll go right to a form and an email address and a telephone number, and do that. Let me know how, you work, how it works out. 
Okay, I'm also going to call uh, Dr. Hagee's office as well because he's our member here and uh, see what they can do to help me as well. So I'm not giving up on this situation. I wouldn't give up if I was you either. I look forward to an update. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. You too. Bye-bye. Was that a yes, Dave? Uh, Line number what? I'm sorry, I can't six. Okay, let's go to line number six. Al, you're on the air. Al, line number six. Hello, Paddy. Hi, Al, turn on your radio. Not, I say the sun is beginning to shine again. That's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. I'll turn on your radio before we start oh, talking so it doesn't right. fool you up. And Al's a veteran and knows he has to turn on the radio. I can't hear you, Dave. Uh, anyway, let's... Okay, Al, you there? Should I put Al on hold again, Dave, and tell him he's up next after the break? Yeah, Paddy, okay. I turn down. Okay, I'll go right ahead. Paddy, listen. Wow. What's the people going to do the winter? They're going to freeze up because they're going to turn down their furnaces in the nighttime, turn off their furnaces in the nighttime in their stove aisles, and the little children got to get up in the morning and go out of a coal house for to go to school. That's what I was t- told. Well, we hear stories. You know, there was yeah. a story coming out of uh, Fogo Island, Mayor Andrew Shea, saying that seniors have left their homes that they've been in all their lives to move into seniors' apartment because they get the heat included. That's right. And look, there's there's negotiations between the province and the federal government to see home heating yeah. fuels exempt from the carbon tax. The cost of some of these fuels is certainly way more than it was a year ago. So I think there's a, yeah. a absolute worry yes, right. about what some people are going to do, especially those on whether it be a fixed income or seniors or whoever, because that's, you know, over the summer, we're worried about the price of gas. Here comes the cooler temperatures, and people are obviously going to be more worried about the cost of heat in their home. Yeah, and Patty, those stores is going up. They're doing what they like. They're doing what they like. The people can't get enough when they've got... The oil is going to go up the chimney, and they won't have no money. They got to pay all their checks for the for the oil bill. And in the stores, they can't. They have no money for to buy groceries. Yeah, and I blame the Liberal government for all this, for the stores and putting up the the grocery stores. And the Liberals won't get in no more. That's it. According to the news I heard from other people. Thank you, Paddy. No you, problem, Al. You have a good day. You too, buddy. All, right. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, uh, break time. When we come back, Connie, appreciate your patience. She's next. Connie Pike, retired police inspector and anti-violence advocate. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Connie Pike. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Um, well, I was listening to all your calls this morning. Uh, the theme that kept popping out at me was uh, volunteers are the heart of the community because just about all your calls this morning were about people doing good in the community. And, of course, that, including Maisie, I love that call. Um, <clears throat> what struck me also, though, is, you know, the dichotomy in our communities and in our province where we have such good people doing such good work for a variety of activities, and then we have these perpetrators, you know, who are committing crimes, <laughs> like this person changing his name. Mm-hmm. Those sorts of issues. So it's just a continuing dichotomy, it seems. Um, but in any event, I wanted to talk about Child Abuse Prevention Month. And um, we're doing a lot of proclamation signings this month. We sent out 
emails last week to over 270 town councils, city councils. And what I'd really like to emphasize is the role of, you know, local government as well as the provincial government uh, in terms of creating the awareness to heighten and strengthen the awareness that we so desperately need. Because I mentioned to Tim last week that our numbers are not going down. So I think the thing we're missing here when I continually say, you know, we're not connecting the dots, um, the education, the awareness, uh, agencies, businesses, governments, this needs to be given priority. Um, Bev um, will contact you next week. We were going to talk about uh, the subject of Pornhub. Uh, she received a call last month from a journalist in Ontario about Visa and MasterCard suspending their services to MindGeek, which is the parent company of Pornhub. And there are 115 million daily users around the world, 4 million of which are Canadians. I think I added an extra one, but uh, 4 million Canadians every day use a site called Pornhub and are putting it on their credit cards. So it's, you know, it's pretty blatant. Um, and that's more than Netflix and Zoom combined when you think about 115 million every day. So Bev will chat with you more about that and the kinds of um, issues that are needing to be addressed with that, all the hundreds of thousands of videos on that site that people view uh, children 10, 12, 14 years of age. So I think, you know, we need more information. We need to do a better job of prioritizing. And in so, that thing, I've been a bit disappointed because, again, as I mentioned to Tim, the latest provincial government statistics date back to 2012. Just to make sure that I heard that properly, are you saying that there's child pornography on Pornhub? Oh, yes. Really? Oh, definitely. Definitely. It, it, it's actually monetizing child rapes. That's what it's doing. They're, they're showing this in these particular videos. And as I mentioned, there's hundreds of thousands of them. And um, children are being viewed by these people who are paying with their credit card to watch a child be raped. Because, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about it, but, you know, we've got law enforcement agencies both undercover and in real time looking to find people who are distributing or manufacturing child porn, whether it be images or videos, because it's generally done in very, very dark corners. Pornhub, as you mentioned, is, I guess, the world's most popular pornography site. So you would think if they're doing that, they're easy pickings and easy target, and they could be taken down very simply. So I'm just surprised to hear that that is one of the genres, as evil as it is, featured on that website. Yeah, uh, well, you know, it's always a shock. It's always a surprise to hear that. But <clears throat> I'm not sure uh, what the resources are that are available right now to the policing community and how many resources they have. But a number of years ago, I attended a conference, and one of the expert speakers uh, was doing that very kind of work. And he said Canadian police agencies were, you know, 10 years behind the ball then. So I don't know that 
particular statistic now, but it strikes me as there is so much that the agencies are not able to keep up. Oh, I would imagine, and it's plain whack-a-mole. Uh, I think it's, if people, and you know, it's hard to plant these awful seeds in people's minds, but we need to think about what's really happening in the world. If we knew exactly how prevalent child pornography was, we'd all be absolutely horrified. So, you know, and I've actually heard people in a court of law, as reported in transcripts, and they've been accused of uh, distributing child pornography, whether it be an image or a video, and they, you know, part of their defense will be, well, I didn't hurt the child. Yes, you did. You directly hurt the child. If you're consuming that awful evil, then you're part of the problem. You're the biggest part of the problem. If no one was looking, no one would be making it. Yeah, exactly. And when these people are looking and viewing these videos and they're watching the same ones over and over, each time that someone views that video, that child is basically being re-victimized again and again and again. And, you know, if you have an entity that gathers, because I mentioned 115 million daily, well, that's that's. 40, 42 billion people annually, you know, who are looking at these images. Like, what is it that we're not doing? Why is it that people feel so entitled, so free to do this, you know, able to do it, most able to get away with it? We're we're definitely missing something. We definitely need uh, greater prioritization, and we need more investment in addressing these types of crimes. Uh, we do what we can in terms of creating awareness once a month. But again, I'll go back to needing the urgent help, actually, of not only the Canadian government, but our provincial government, our municipal government. We need these people on our side so that children in every respective community in the province can feel as though they can come forward and tell their stories. There's such a a dynamic of secrecy around this whole crime that, you know, by not talking about it in adult circles, we'll never give children permission to come forward if they don't feel it's something that's acceptable to say or safe place in which to say it. Appreciate this this morning, Connie. I look forward to speaking with Bev again soon. Uh, I read her book. I actually wrote a blurb for the back cover. And she's been a great advocate, as you have been as well. So appreciate your time. Have a nice weekend. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Thank you so much, Patty. We'll be at Government House tonight. They're going to be lighting up in blue, uh, which is our color for this month. But let's hope that, you know, people remember this horrific, horrendous crime every day of the year, not just one month or one day. Here, here. Thanks, Connie. Thank you. Take Thank care. you. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, it is time for the news. When we come back, my friend and our good friends at VOWR have something coming up this weekend you might be interested in. Ron LaDrew coming up. He's been at VOWR for a long time. We'll find out exactly how long when we speak with Ron. Then we're going to talk about the term that I said a little while ago, nanny state. And, of course, it's a term that I read verbatim from an email of concern when we talked about amendments to the Consumer Protection and Business Practices Act. Someone said just another example of the nanny state. Uh, Dr. Francis Scully wants to talk about that, and then lots of time to speak with you. Don't go away.
Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Ron LaDrew. You're on the air. Good morning, uh, Patty, uh, and thank you for taking my call this morning. And uh, it's going to be a a lovely weekend, and uh, tomorrow is going to be a big day for us here at BOWR Radio. We're having our fall fundraiser, our Radiothon, and we're hoping that the uh, listeners of BOWR, whether in St. John's, Northeast Avalon, or basically around the world on the Internet, are going to uh, come forth and uh, maybe uh, make a pledge and help uh, keep BOWR Radio on the air. 1924, Reverend uh, J.G. Joyce uh, had a vision to uh, to have an outreach uh, to residents who couldn't hear their church service from Wesley United Church, so he decided to start a radio station. Here we are, 98 years later, still going strong, and uh, we're looking forward to continuing on for at least another 100. And you've been there since day one, Ron. Well, I start... At the, when I was 19 years of age, and I'm still here. But uh, we, have, uh, we have over 50 volunteers here at BOWR, and they do a great job. And uh, all, all of our group, uh, are, they, they come together uh, daily to present programs, easy listening programs for our listening audience. And between me and the fence post, uh, I tune into VOWR, and I think most of our listeners will also at, at times tune into your lovely station. And to know that it's volunteer-driven is so important. And we try to have a close relationship here at VOCM with VOWR, with our engineering staff, and when the transmitter was, was down and trying to help out, because you're an important part of the community. Well, you know, I can, I can go back to the mid-1980s when we lost our tower from, uh, from an ice storm. And uh, the technicians from VOCM came through for us big time at that uh, at that particular uh, time when uh, our tower just basically collapsed. Yeah, I mean, tell us a bit more about what's going to happen tomorrow on the radiothon. What are people going to hear? What are you hoping to? What's like a fundraising goal or what have you? Well, uh, we'll start off uh, tomorrow morning at, at at nine o'clock. We have some volunteers that are going to be taking the calls. Uh, by the way, the number is 579-9233 and 579-9232. We have two uh, phone lines uh, to take your calls. So throughout the day, our volunteers are going to be taking their pledges, and uh, we're going to be uh, the, hopefully uh, make it a good day for VOWR so we can uh, basically uh, stay on the air. We're also doing an on-location up at Dominion Stores up on Black Marsh Road. We're going to be there uh, at uh, 12 noon tomorrow morning. We'll be around there for maybe three or four hours, up to four o'clock. So hopefully we'll have some of the shoppers at Dominion stores drop by and say hello. Absolutely. And uh, I know a member of the board asked me to uh, put an anniversary wish on the air for you folks. I was really pleased to be invited and happy to do it. So uh, congratulations on a great run at VOWR. Hopefully our faithful listeners will also give some of their listening time and their generous donation to your station tomorrow so that we can keep you on the air. It's really great to have you on the show. Look forward to seeing you and the boys again sometime soon, Ron. Thank you, uh, Patty, for for the call, and we look forward to the weekend. Thanks very much, Ron. Take care. Bye now. All right, bye-bye. Let's go line number four. Dr. Francis Scully, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. Uh, Can you hear me there? I can hear you there. Okay. Quay, Patty, dear dear Gwit, so I'm saying hello to you in my uh, 
attempts at Mima and Irish. So uh, good morning, beautiful, beautiful day. And thanks for all your lovely work and thanks for all the uh, people who are doing such good work in our, uh, in our communities. Yeah. Absolutely, I'm with you. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to share that um, um, abuse of children and throughout our lives is extremely um, evil and it's also extremely bad for health long term and actually um, the Canadian physician Dr. Gabor Mate with his son Daniel has just produced an incredible book called The Myth of Normal Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture and um, I'm reading through the book but I think they've done a wonderful wonderful work in um, explaining how uh, abuse, suffering, trauma throughout our lives um, can have long-term effects on health and also can be healed. So, um, and so, you know, people saying things like the nanny state, it's just really showing a tremendous lack of understanding of what it means to be human and, uh, and healthy and how we are all interconnected. And when we allow abuse to happen to other people and to other living beings, uh, we actually harm ourselves. Um, and the myth of normal does a lot of work to explain the actual science and the proof of all this. Um, so, but Dr. Scully, what's the relationship you're making between child abuse and the term nanny state? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, I'm just saying that uh, nanny state, um, somebody was, was so, so abuse has many forms. It can be physical, it can be financial, right? Mm-hmm. So allowing people to be exploited financially is a form of abuse. Uh, is what that's, that's my link to the nanny state, you know, um, and allowing pub horn to exist mm-hmm. is an abuse. So I'm, I'm just saying that there are many different types of abuse. It can be emotional, it can be psychological, it can be financial, it can be sexual, it can be spiritual. There are many different ways in which people can be hurt and harmed. And hurting and harming pe- people financially uh, um, does, does real harm, just, uh, just as much as hurting and harming in other ways. Sure. That was my the nanny state yeah, reference regarding the amendments for high cost lenders, you know, nanny state is a term that comes from Britain. And it was basically when the government imposes their wants on you, their regulations on you to make decisions for you that you normally wouldn't make for yourself. So that's kind of the origin of nanny state. It's an interesting thing. I think you said allowing Pornhub to exist. Just for the purpose of conversation, when government gets involved in that type of stuff and prohibits those types of things, the outcomes have been very dark and worse than the reality of having them available, like whether it be the prohibition on tobacco or alcohol or pornography, because when it's not there for all to see and to regulate and to understand, then it happens in much darker corners because if people want it, they'll get it. It doesn't even matter what we're talking about in this world. There will always be someone who's willing to provide what the public wants, smokes or booze or porn or gambling or prostitutes or whatever the case may be. So when we prohibit it, we possibly unintentionally make it worse. Your thoughts? Oh, I, you are really right, Sadie. You're really right. Uh, so I, I am, I am, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very, very, very complex top, topic. Um, and we are all interconnected. 
so actually transforming things for the better is is really better and that's that's like a massive 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 um uh, topic and we don't have time I think for the whole discussion but you are right yeah no I'm not you know prohibiting things and especially with children you know with adolescents and so on you know um, every parent knows you know when you prohibit something <laughs> you may well have the very opposite effect right so um, yeah so, so uh, I'm not suggesting prohibition but but um, the other lady, Connie, who spoke about the fact, I, I do think that allowing people to watch the rape and torture of children is not a good thing. No, of course. And there's nobody, unless you're someone who's participating in such evil, then everyone is nodding in agreement. No one, no one argues that point. It's one of the most heinous things that can happen on this planet is the willful abuse, whether it be physical, sexual, emotional of a child. It's just something that makes my blood boil. Uh, anything else you'd like to say, Dr. Scully, before we take a break this morning? Yes. So anyway, so uh, the opposite or the antidote to all forms of abuse is compassion. And I trained through Stanford Medical School to teach a uh, meditation course that is is compassion focused. And I'm starting up. It's an eight week course for two hours per week. And I'm starting up again next week, three times per week. And there are lots of slots open. And the cost of the course is $401.60 uh, for the eight weeks, and it can be divided over one payment, three main payments, or six payments. However, it is a compassion-focused course. So if there's anybody who really wants to take this course, they can just email me and we can waive um, waive the fees. So, uh, and in that course, it's a meditation-focused course, but it does uh, allow people to safely um, explore uh, what compassion means. And compassion is not something that is, um, you know, touchy. You know, it, there's fierce, fierce, fierce compassion is needed to stop to stop somebody who is uh, a predator and who's doing something evil. So it, compassion does not mean that you tolerate everything. It means that you do, uh, you try to find the best way to um, uh, rein in people who are really doing evil. Um, and, um, and, to, and the best way is to prevent people profiting from doing evil so uh, so i wasn't saying prohibiting no no we know that prohib prohibition doesn't work but we can really look at um our, our you know the financing of everything and uh where profits are being made and whether they're being made correctly and there is great work being done now by um Transparency International uh, on how money is laundered and moved around the planet and um, what can be done about this. And, you know, if we look look at the oil prices and look at the suffering everywhere in Britain in here and, and especially um, in Ukraine and so on. And why did uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, Russia, you know, cut off oil supplies this month. I mean, they are um, 
really trying to influence the midterms in the U.S. so that President Joseph Biden is not re-elected. Well, he, he's not up for re-election at this moment. Uh, the House, no, no, both uh, arms Democrats of the House. Uh, okay. Control. Anyway, sorry. But anyway, uh, no. And it's about the price per barrel of oil as much as anything else. Uh, what's your email address quickly, Dr. Scully, before I have to go? Oh, my email address is dr.fsully at bekindnl.ca and the website is becompassionatenl.ca. Appreciate the time this morning. Have a nice weekend. You too. Beautiful day. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take that break. When we come back, Ed is not pleased, is the word I'm going to use with the price of fuel. Then we're going to talk about Quinn's Rockstar Awards. Our buddy Adam Stead is in the queue as well. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number six. Ed, you're on the air. <laughs> How you doing, bud? Okay, bye. You? Uh, I woke up this morning, got out, and looked at the gas price, uh, or fuel price. I was not very happy. I don't think any of us were. <laughs> no, no, me not, especially because, see, I drive a car which uses diesel fuel. So at the pump itself yesterday, I seen it was $2.57 a liter. Gasoline was $1.81. So I'm paying seven over $0.75 cents per liter more for the same fuel that comes in the same tanker that comes in the same gas. Now, most people don't think about this by any particular means, but people that make gas cars, they don't really think of it too much. But this is diesel fuel. Every transport truck out there that is on the road, that's delivering goods and services to people all over the province, all over the world, most of them are diesel. They're using diesel fuel. Your garbage truck going around collecting their garbage, that uses diesel fuel, right? Fire trucks, they're using diesel fuel. It's all taxpayers' money, every bit of it. Don't matter if it's government, as they say, because it's not government money. Government doesn't have any money. They have public taxpayers' money, or they got credit from someone they got a loan off of some other bank or something to give them in order to have public services for you. Either way, every cent the diesel fuel goes up is less and less money that you're going to have in your pocket, your own pocket, even if you drive a, a gasoline car. Because guess what happened? It comes on the bills that you go to your grocery store and buy that food. Because all that food is going to go up more and more and more. Yeah. With this diesel fuel going up more and more and more because it comes to transportation. Realistically, diesel fuel should be a hell of a lot less by any means because that's your main supply to transportation for getting goods and services back and forth. If you have that up at that price... Everything goes up. The lower the price of diesel fuel you can get, that means the price of everything will eventually gradually go down slowly but surely. At least we hope so. But I mean, I mean, two fifty-seven liter—that's that's over ten dollars a gallon. Oh, it's madness. I, I mean, we talk about this stuff all the time on this program, and not just about your diesel-powered car or the the issue regarding higher prices in the grocery store, and whether it be furniture or anything else, because everything here eventually gets trucked across the island or around the island, so it has an implication across the board. I think we all get that. Yeah, and all your kids who go to school on the school bus, most of them are all diesel also. So all this diesel fuel has to be relying on all the transportation you see all around Newfoundland and Labrador, no matter where it's to, anywhere in the world. They're bringing food, your kids to school, everything. As long as that diesel fuel stays up and that price, everything is going to go up. That means there's going to be less money in your pocket so you can go to that grocery store and actually buy food. And it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And plus, 
people who are transparent, like I bring someone back and forth who's an essential worker who does cleaning for services from all over the city, right? It's getting harder for me to bring that person back and forth to go to work. So sooner or later, I'm not going to have any money to bring that person to work so they can make money to put food in their pocket, in their, in their, own, in their, own, in their own kitchen. You know, this madness of fuel costs has to stop. It's ridiculous. There's no need of it. I mean, if if Iran was next to me, like if Iran was literally next door to us, I could go across their border and fill up my entire car for three U.S. dollars, five cents a liter for diesel fuel over there, one cent a liter for diesel fuel over in in um, Libya. So why are we paying two fifty seven a liter? I mean, our, most of our fuel is not even coming from Canada; it's coming from Saudi Arabia. You know, what? being shipped in into the Irving facility, being processed and then sold to us. Yeah, some. I mean, I don't think Saudi Arabia makes up for most, but certainly when we talk about the Irvings in New Brunswick, certainly they do indeed have a pretty hefty contract with Saudi Arabian producers. I think Saudi Aramco, in particular, the national oil company. Uh, anything else you want to say, Ed? Because I think we're all in the very same boat with the frustrations associated with going to the gas station, whether it be to pump diesel and or unleaded gasoline, because it is... It's been a long, painful, expensive road. Well, I mean, two years ago, it was six, what, 70 some odd cents a liter. Now yeah. it's 257. You know, and at that time, there was tankers off the coast all over the world and nobody wanted to fuel. You could buy an entire tanker of fuel for nothing, for zero dollars. They were giving it away because nobody wanted to fly anywhere. Nobody wanted to go anywhere. Everything was stopped. Sure. You know, but all of a sudden, since everything's moving, all of a sudden, the price of fuel goes up, but yet, what happens, right? Everything else goes up after that. That it does. The multiplier effect is absolutely real when we talk about the price of fuel. No question about it. I mean, even in the world of gasoline, we've had to create programs for people to be in closer proximity to their food because just even the price of gas to go shop. So, I mean, it's just had an impact across the board. Absolutely no question. And now, as many people are rightfully pointing out, here comes the colder season with the fall and the, and the winter, and now the price of heat in your home. And to compare the cost year over year, it's pretty intense stuff. Uh, I appreciate this, Ed. I'm late for the news, but I'll give you the last word. I mean, you know, it, it, this, this, this federal government, we got to stop this tax baloney. This is, this is crazy. Completely crazy. I mean, it's obviously they're gone insane or something. They've got to see a psychiatrist because literally they're hurting Canadians right across the entire country. Everybody's getting ticked off with them. You know they're not going to get back in again in the next, letter, the next federal election. With the federal government? Oh, yeah. The federal government has nothing to do with the price of gas. No, they don't get the price of gas, but when you're putting carbon tax on stuff, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it goes up and up and up. Then you got the price of, you know. There's all kinds of exemptions regarding the use of diesel and carbon tax, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't get the exception. Sorry. No, you were driving a passenger vehicle. That, that wasn't the implication. No, definitely not. But, I mean, this madness got to stop with fuel. The companies, the oil companies out there got to start realizing that if they don't start cutting down on costs, and the government don't start chopping off their, their ridiculous carbon taxes and stuff like that. This 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 is an introduction, literally, of people being led in a society of stealing fuel from gas stations just to get by. And it's getting worse and worse. I mean, I've, I've heard from gas stations all over the city itself, and they're being robbed blind. 
that don't they won't even put on a pump in some cases anymore on the outside at a certain time of the day to get fuel because they're too afraid that they're going to get robbed. Yeah, and that's why you got so many pumps. You got to put your credit card or your debit card in before you even pump because the the pump and dash has become more and more common, and people are stealing food. I mean, we know that the implications are of increased pressure on my pocketbook or my wallet. Uh, I'm late for the news, Ed, but I appreciate the call this morning. Thanks a lot. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, it is indeed time for the news. For those in the UQ, don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to Justin Campbell from the First Light Center. Let's go. Good morning, Justin. You're on the air. Hey, how are you, Patty? Oh, very well. Thanks. How about you? Doing all right today. I uh, just wanted to talk about um, the report that we released, that, that for first voice released uh, last week that was on uh, policing and a range of uh, problems that we identified in that report. Everything from systemic racism to systemic misogyny and the inability of the RNC in particular to address those problems. Um, just wanted to say that uh, we are disturbed by the failure of those in power to accept the facts that we put out in that report and especially their failure to acknowledge that even these things are a problem at all. Um, and on top of that, their utter failure to make any kind of commitment to solving the problems that we've identified. I was a little bit surprised they weren't in attendance when the report was delivered. I was a little bit surprised they didn't have a reaction to it because even individual police officers that I speak with, they think that the establishment of civilian oversight to get ahead of the matters before it ends up on the table, say, of uh, uh, Mike King and the team at the Serious Incident Response Team. So, um, you know, I don't think I'm totally surprised that they haven't admitted to all their flaws, but I'm surprised that they haven't made some comment on it. Yeah, um, we've been surprised by that as well. And I want to be really clear on this point, too. Like, this isn't about just criticizing the RNC for the sake of criticizing it. We recognize that police officers have a very difficult job to do, and that's exactly why we're advocating for a stronger, proactive, more comprehensive system of civilian oversight so that police officers can focus on the job of policing and allow things like um, community consultations, um, setting policing priorities, um, establishing policies, allowing all of that stuff to move to a civilian-led, proactive uh, police board. That'll increase trust in the police among members of communities like the urban indigenous community, for example, as well as women, sexual minorities, other racialized groups. Um, building those that kind of trust with communities like that is really important to helping police do a more effective job. Yeah. You know, people don't want to hear this, so I'm going to say it anyway. Not every cop is a bad cop. They're not. There's lots of committed, dedicated professionals in the force, and they would love nothing better than to have that level of oversight so that we can get back to some sort of level of trust that's eroded over the years and decades between civilians and law enforcement because the stories are becoming more and more common, whether it be seeping into our psyche from the United States, whether it be with issues we've seen well-documented in this province with both the RCMP and the RNC. It's in everyone's best interest if we have a better relationship with law enforcement because they're not going away, and nor should they go away but if we have civilian-led oversight a serious incident response team uh, inquiries when required uh, investigations that lead to punishment when required it's better for all of us including every single member of the force who's on the job for the right reason yeah that's that's exactly right and so we're putting this forward not just in the interest of the urban indigenous community which is our primary constituency but also because we believe that it's a benefit to everyone who lives in the province here 
Um, the, the real uh, disappointment here, though, is that we handed over the report last week to the Minister of Justice, John Hogan, um, who uh, we appreciated was there in attendance personally to receive the report. Um, but, you know, we've been bothered by his very noncommittal um, position as to the recommendations that we put forward and even accepting the facts that we put. Uh, that, that's been uh, clearly and extensively documented, documented in the report. So we would like to see some action on this because I, I think, like you say, um, there's widespread recognition that policing as it exists right now just isn't working. And that's because of the lack of effective, proactive, comprehensive civilian-led oversight. So what we really need is those in power to make a commitment um, to addressing these problems by implementing the recommendations that we put forward. I totally get it. Uh, I'm glad you made time for the program. Justin, when some more commentary or reaction flows in or want to extend the conversation, you're more than welcome to join us back on the show. Okay, thanks a lot. I'm sure I'll be back then. Take, take, take good care, Justin. Have a nice weekend. Yeah, you too. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Justin Campbell from the First Light Center. Will I take another one here, Dave? I can't blow through the break because i got to be somewhere. Let's go. Line number one. Adam Stead, you're on the air. Well, good morning, Patty. How are you today on this beautiful October day? I couldn't be better, and I love talking about Quinn's Rockstar Awards. You know, we're talking about the loss of Quinn Butt, but then the playground that you've opened and the room you've got at the Women's Shelter and the Rockstar Awards for kids who are between the age of 5 and 18 are doing great things in their community, a big prize and great recognition. What's happening this year? Well, I'm actually calling today to let you know the two years in a row that we're giving out today. Um... Uh, as you said, we we pick an exemption, exceptional student uh, between the ages of five and sixteen, and this year uh, the first was actually for 2020. The winners would be a local group. They are the Salt Beef Junkies, which consists of Ty Sims and brothers Luke and Alex Mercer. Um, these young folks met at the St. Pat's Dancers, and they came together as an accordion. Uh, playing group and they have volunteered extensively throughout the community between um, going into St. Pat's um, uh, dancers as well. They volunteered numerous times for different um, seniors resources. Amazing, amazing, amazing boys. And by the way, this is the first time a boy has won the Quinn's Rockstar Award. So my hat's off to the three boys. Uh, I was very uh, privileged to uh, bring the check out to them a couple of weeks ago and laid it in their hands. Here's $2,500 to do whatever you wish. And for last year, for 2021, the winner is absolutely phenomenal and that would be Emma King. Emma King has raised over $20,000 by herself for the Ronald McDonald's house, Ronald McDonald House, Patty. She is something that every child in this province should look up to and to aspire to be like. Um, I am so privileged to announce these both these winners today and we are opening up nominations for 2022 today which will close on christmas day and we will be giving out the award before the new year so if anybody in your listening audience uh, who knows of an exceptional child between the ages of five and 16 who do give back to the community please email me at rememberingquinn at gmail.com and i would be happy to see if they could be the winners for this year 
I think it's great what you're doing. You know, right from the playground uh, into the women's shelter and the Rockstar Awards. I would imagine it's not only the recognition of the youth who are the winners, but it's to motivate their friends and their schoolmates to see what they're doing because now they know more about it and they see the shiny prize. Who knows what we need to do to motivate young people because there's so many good young people doing incredible stuff in the community. And to recognize them like you're doing, Adam, I think is awesome. You're a big friend of the show and always appreciate your time. Well, I really appreciate you and VOCM for having me on today, and uh, I look forward to talking to you soon, Patty. Anytime, man. Keep up the good work. All right, bud. Take care. We'll see you, Adam. Bye-bye. All right, it's Adam Stanton, Quinn's Rockstar Awards. I'm actually gone here now. I've got to be somewhere for 12 o'clock, but Linda Swain is going to sit in with uh, sit in for me. Coming up on the line is the mayor of Port Basque. That's Brian Button. We're not only talking about the update on Fiona, but the anniversary of the sinking of the SS Caribou back in 1942. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Linda Swain up next. Don't go away. And we're back. Linda Swain sitting in for Patty Daly. He has to go to another appointment, so uh, happy to be here and to talk to Mayor Brian Brian Button of Portabasque. Hello. Good morning, Linda. Well, I'm so glad that we had this opportunity because I was trying to reach you yesterday, as a matter of fact, to get a little update on, on the situation in Portabasque uh, following Hurricane Fiona. I did get your message late yesterday evening and was going to try to hook up with you uh, today, but it's good we're getting the opportunity now to, to have a little chat about that. So what's happening uh, now? We're hearing that uh, more Red Cross volunteers are being brought into the community as, I guess, the enormity of this starts to sink in. Well, I would I would assume there probably may be because, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a big, you know, it's, I guess if I could back it up. I know it's been, uh, you know, we're moving into the fourth week and, uh, you know, it's been very frustrating for residents, uh, residents that have been impacted and residents that are outside of their homes waiting to find out, you know, what's the status of their home and so on and so forth. But you got to put it all in perspective here, and for for us as a municipal, uh, you know, a municipality, this is uncharted territory for us. Uh, you know, we're we're looking at uh, something that we've never faced before, and it it comes with uh, quite a bit from from all these inspections to all the, uh, you know, the the interviews of the home, the reinspections, the, the the major problems, the moving of debris that had to be done first and the amount of debris and so on and so forth. And it's been a major, major undertaking where we're getting to a point where the, you know, the household inspections are all done now. The data is being prepared and uh, the Fiona Command Center now is in preparation of getting a tiered log approach now, which includes a comprehensive review of all the reported households impacted and the information now will be forthcoming for people as it's all uh, uh, reviewed and, and sent along, right? So it, it that part of it is coming, but then we're, we've just moved into the commercial properties that have been checked, being checked as well, and that's ongoing for today, and they're hopeful to finish that up today. So this has been, uh, you know, most days when I've come into the office here and, and to working with our team here that's been together, it's been a monumental task from our side. So I can only imagine what's been happening with the immediate response team and all the people that they're putting out and the constant back and forth that we have on a daily basis. 
So those assessments uh, completed, uh, the commercial ones you say are being uh, completed today, but um, uh, any results from those assessments? Are people starting to hear whether or not they'll be able to return to their homes yet or not? Well, that's the thing. The uh, All of it now is, was, uh, like we spent, I'd say, I don't know how many, hour, how many hours yesterday, but, you know, reviewing the data and making sure that everything is right when it comes to civic addresses, the, the amount of information that's been collected and going, and now this has to be reviewed. And once that's been done, and it will be then, it'll be a, a source of, uh, you know, letting residents know of what the status of their properties would be. But until that is done, um, that information is, is still uh, not available yet, but will be available uh, forthcoming in the next days or so. So uh, four weeks, um, how are people doing? I mean, this has got to be you wearing. Know, it, it is. It's wearing on them. It's wearing on the people that have been involved, and you know, and uh, you know, it's one thing for us, uh, but it's been a very challenging time for the people that are involved. And and I understand totally. You know, we have people on a daily basis calling and wanting to know what the status and and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, we don't have that information and the information to be provided to them until all the data is collected and and to make that you know that decision because we've had everything from you know it's. It started with structural impacts to electrical to health and protection and then, you know, just regular health inspections of homes. And, you know, after all this stuff that's gone in, is, is the home healthy enough for someone to go in? So it has been a major piece, and I understand, like, people... People have gone through a lot. Uh, you know, the first first week or so was the, the shock of it all, of it, and the reality of it all setting in and seeing. And once the debris started to, to be pulled away and moved away, it's, it's then, well, you know, I'm not in my home. What is it going to be? And I totally get it. I get it. I understand it. I feel what they're, they're going through, and we're dealing with it as well. And, uh, you know, we're in this together, but, uh, and, and it has been very, very difficult. No doubt. And, uh, you know, like you say, in those first few days, you're just sort of, I guess, going into survival mode. Uh, You know, what do I do now at this moment in time? How are my needs met? But now I think it's the enormity of it is sinking into people. Well, what do I do Christmas? What do I do next summer? What do I, you know, where am I going to live? And you got to realize too. Uh, besides getting the information, if uh, you know, you also there's you know the cabinet committees and and different groups are looking at the comprehensive uh, you know compensation package that are going to be looking at this for people who may be losing their homes and and so on and so forth. So there's a big picture to it all and. Um, I had someone call me just two days ago, and we were talking about where we were with it and what was happening, and they were asking me questions about it like we're doing now. And and I guess they had gone through it in some other areas, and they're saying, you know, you guys seem like you guys are, are progressing well into it. And if anything, it seemed like you might be ahead a little bit, especially with what you're facing and how much of it you're facing. Uh, <laughs> I might have, you know, tossed back to that person, like, I don't feel that way. Uh, not because of the work that's done, it's just being sitting in the middle of it. We're all wanting things yesterday as opposed to waiting it out and forgetting it another day. And I guess that's been the trying part of this. But I know and I can say to all residents of our community that the people and the people that's been provided from the province and other aspects and the volunteers and the people that are here on the ground are working day and night to try to get this 
to a conclusion of finding out what the status of their homes and what the the future might look like uh, for them. So this has been a uh, grueling uh, time. Uh, You know, I can speak for myself. I know how many hours that we're spending here and I know how many hours that they're at it. So it's not that it's not there uh, or not people working on it. It is just trying to get it all put together. It's been just so much uh, it's it's just unbelievable. I I hope I would never ever have to go through anything like this again. Nor would I want any community or the people to ever have to go through these processes. It it is a very grueling and very stressful time. Without doubt. Uh, now we only have about a minute or so left. I know this is an, another uh, important milestone is being reached today. The 80th anniversary of the sinking of the Caribou, and you can just imagine now the families hearing that news uh, as it slowly started filtering through uh, innocent lives taken uh, during the course of war. Um, how is it being marked? Well, there we did, and, and that's you know that's one of the reasons why I wanted to call today and marking the 80th anniversary. This was a devastating time in our history, back in this community and for our province. Uh, you know, being the link to the mainland uh, with the SS Caribou, and you know, recognizing now that it's been 80 years since that have happened, and uh, at that time with 136 people perishing at that time, it was you know something that's uh, been in the history of our community. We did have a uh, a memorial service that was planned uh, to take place to, you know, to honor this date. Uh, but because of what was happening in our community and some of the people that would be involved in this have, have been impacted as well. And uh, so we've kind of tried to postpone it for now uh, so we can do it, you know, at a later date. Uh, we will recognize it as well as we always do during Remembrance Day, but we'll probably move this ahead to to probably be able to either do it in the spring or recognize it at the next anniversary, but it will be done. But I wanted to do it from a community's perspective today is that we have a lot of people that, you know, this this has been in their lives and their memories for many, many years and have been impacted by this where their families had lost loved ones back at that time. So, as a community, we are recognizing the 80th anniversary of the loss of the SS Caribou. At a very difficult time. Uh, Mayor Brian Button, really appreciate your time. Thank you. And thank you, Linda, for having us. And uh, Patty will be back, of course, Monday morning. Uh, stay tuned for that. I'll be on, on target uh, in another hour's time. So uh, I'll listen for that. Uh, Jolene Grimes is up now with News at Noon. Thanks for listening.